I was to summarize the last 10 years uh, plus in, in one sentence, and a lot of what's been happening is the transformation of risk-free interest into interest-free risk. It has created what I believe are bubbles that are by now too big to fail. They are so huge that if those bubbles were to implode, they would drag the system down with it. Welcome back to the Empire's New Clothes. This is the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Brad MacArthur. We're about to speak with Diego Padilla. He is a portfolio manager and a partner at Quadriga Asset Managers. And he's one of the best folks out there who's able to explain what the heck is going on with monetary policy. So why are interest rates low or negative? Why are we printing money? How are all these things connected? Will this lead to inflation or not? He's able to take the mechanics of very complex systems and break them down simply and concisely. So if you're still unsure of how these things exactly work, maybe you have ideas, check out Diego. He's going to break it down for you. Diego, welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yes, glad, glad to have you here. So you have a quite a long background in the financial markets. You began your career in the 90s. Could you briefly walk us through a little bit of where did you start and what brought you to uh, what you do today? Sure. Um, so I'm a mining and petroleum engineer, originally from Spain. I did my master's in mineral economics at the Colorado School of Mines in, in Golden and also the French Institute of Petroleum in, in Paris. Uh, I did my thesis in something called real options, which values real assets using option theory. And uh, that's a lot of fun, uh, like seeing a lettuce as a call option on a salad uh, type of, uh, and, and basically that thesis opened the opportunity to work uh, in investment banking, the sales and trading division at JP Morgan in London. And that was my first job. It was uh, mid late nineties. It was a uh, very depressed, uh, commodity market, and, and I was part of the precious metals and foreign exchange division. Um, I basically, uh, after that, I had the opportunity to, to work for Goldman Sachs and then Merrill Lynch, always in the macro commodity space uh, between London, New York, and Singapore. And I was eventually global head on the, in the commodity side. And uh, that was before I moved on to, to the buy side uh, with my own firm and some, some large macro like Bluecrest Capital or, or Diamond Asia. Um, throughout that process, I, I worked closely with um, uh, all sorts of clients, both on the investor side as well, as well as corporates. And I managed mandates on behalf of large sovereign wealth funds and big, big clients. Um, I, uh, the, the, the second part of my career is I'm also a, a best-selling author. Uh, so I, uh, I've written two books, one on the energy markets called The Energy World is Flat. I co-wrote that with my good friend, uh, Daniel Lacalle, and that was published in English and Spanish and Chinese, a very contrarian thesis uh, that challenged the status quo of, of oil and peak oil theory. And uh, a second book, which is called The Anti-Bubbles or Anti-Bubbles, Potato, Potato, where uh, I basically challenge the, the uh, monetary and fiscal policies without limits. And, and both books were very, very contrarian at the time of writing, very, uh, you know, looking against the consensus, challenging a lot of the, the consensus that, that was prevailing then. And, uh, but I think the time has not only uh, reinforced the, the or, or you know survived. We, we've actually reinforced those theses, and um, so I'm a, uh, I'm, I'm currently uh, back home in, in Spain. I'm in Madrid, where I'm managing partner of Quadriga Asset Managers. It's a 1.8 billion asset and wealth manager, which it's it's a, a good size institution with uh, a lot of uh, like-minded professionals. We're about 90 people in the firm. Uh, we have a broker dealer, an asset and wealth manager, and here I, I specialize on, on, on strategies that are, have a more defensive bias. Um, I'm like the goalkeeper of the, of the team. 
and I continue to do a lot of collaborations with uh, with media. I've written, you know, front page article in the, in the Financial Times. I contribute regularly to Wall Street Journal and and TV and and other uh, sorts of, of media where uh, I, I hope I can provide a, a complementary and different perspective to perhaps uh, the common uh, understanding and, and views of, of the world. So we are quite contrary and challenging a lot of the, these things and, and creating strategies that are, uh, you know, helping uh, institutional and, and, and retail clients uh, around the world. So we, uh, we, we work with pension funds, insurance, and, and that. So an engineer turned into, into a finance person, but, but very much using the concepts and, and, and the framework of mind of that engineering background to, to try to, to navigate these, these markets and the opportunities and challenges that they create. Yeah, well, that's probably a great place to start engineering because it teaches you how to think critically and analyze systems and data. And hearing hearing your background and, of course, reading and preparing for this interview, I noticed a lot of your thinking seems to be so internationally and macro-focused. And so I'd love to start out by asking, what is your basic framework with how you see the financial systems, either just as a whole in, in totality or... How are you thinking about them today? What's what's the framework you use to to analyze all these different, very confusing forces that seem to be going on out there? Well, I think you, you use the right word. This is forces, right? And as an as an engineer, you try to look at this uh, equilibrium of forces, and sometimes these forces might be highly artificial. Normally, you would believe mm-hmm. in uh, uh, Adam Smith's sort of invisible hand, where supply and demand will find their way, we have what I call invisible hands, or, or less so, uh, vis- rather visible hands, which is uh, intervention from governments and central banks and other drivers, which are very much part of the picture. And so we, my framework is, is very contrarian, and in, in some ways it comes up with conclusions that challenge the status quo and, and also the general thinking. Uh, when it comes down to, you know, and, and, and some of these ideas prompted me writing the book. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you're right. The, because the you, anti-bubble you, book? Both. Both books oh, where, both. you know, I, I was looking at the markets, I was analyzing the markets, and, and you find that, you, you know, people are like, really? And do you? <laughs> and you're like, okay, maybe, maybe this is worth sharing and understanding <laughs> more detail. But, uh, yeah, for example, on the macro side, um, I, I would I would say in a very simple way that we are definitely in a paradigm shift. We are undergoing mm. a dramatic change. And to put things in perspective, I think if I was to summarize the last 10 years uh, plus in, in one sentence, and a lot of what's been happening is the transformation of risk-free interest into interest-free risk. And, and what I mean by this is after 2008 and before that previous crisis, uh, we tried to solve problems by printing money. So monetary policy, yeah, that meant, uh, you know, bringing interest rates to zero, central banks printing a ton of money, and effectively creating a highly artificial setup where interest rates are no longer reflection, uh, reflecting some sort of balance, they're artificially low. And, and what you've seen in this last decade with interest rates artificially low, I mean, in the U.S., you still have, uh, you know, front-end rates are at zero, but the back-end is still paying you something in nominal terms. But in Europe or Japan, you know, we're already, it's been a while that we are even in negative interest rates. And this is just mm. nonsense. So a world of negative interest rates is not... It's just 100% artificial. It doesn't reflect the, uh, you know, the proper dynamics of the market. It's the result simply of printing money and lending it to people without limits. And so what it does, this, this last decade has dramatically distorted the world. It has dramatically distorted uh, asset valuations. It has created tremendous distortions. And, and what I always say is it hasn't really solved, you can't really solve problems by printing money and, and increasing mm-hmm. debt. What you're doing is you're delaying the problem. 
So you're kind of kicking the can down the road in the form of debt, an intergenerational issue. You are transferring the problem in the form of currency wars and trade wars. So countries fight between themselves to try to devalue and export and whatever. You are thirdly, you're transforming the problem. So you're effectively creating inflation and you're creating inequality. And unfortunately, and lastly, you are enlarging the problem in the form of bubbles that are too big to fail, etc. And so this last decade and this monetary and fiscal abuse leads us into a situation where we are in a very artificial world, okay, very artificial. Unfortunately, and, and, and this is what's happened, this, this, this distortion of reality, if you think about the value of something, how do you value something? How do you value a bond? How do you value an equity? How do you value anything? Generally, you look at the, the expected cash flows and you discount them. If you're discounting those cash flows, I mean, first of all, you might have very complacent expectations of the future. But if on top of that, you are discounting those cash flows at artificially low rates, like zero, the present value of $100 in 50 years is 100. So there's no time effect. The stupidity of negative interest rates is, is better to receive something in 50 years than today, right? So what you're doing by creating artificially low interest rates is you're creating artificially high valuations. And what is done to, by taking to the limit, it has created what I believe are bubbles that are by now too big to fail. They are so huge that if those bubbles were to implode, they would drag the system down with it. They, would, they are effectively systemic. Think about what would happen if you, know, you have a mortgage or you know, my government in Spain, what would happen if interest rates went up to 5% with the amount of debt that we have? Basically, everybody would go bankrupt. You wouldn't be able to, to pay the debt. And this is a little bit the trade-off that we've lived through the last decade. You just kick the can, increase the debt, print money, create this perception of stability, but in the process, you've dramatically distorted the world, you've created bubbles, and by now, those bubbles are too big to fail. So the framework is telling us we've passed the point of no return. There's no way back. You can't just normalize things, in my opinion. Central banks and governments are hoping to grow out of this and, and grow out of the debt. But the reality is that I think the next decade, if I was to summarize it in one sentence, would be the transformation of bubbles into inflation. Or perhaps, more worryingly, the transformation of bubbles into a stagflation, which is the worst case scenario, which is you know, uh, weak economic growth with uh, uh, inflation. And, and this is really the framework that we're looking at and trying to basically work through the pieces and uh, understand you know, many of the complexities that, that uh, come from a world that is highly artificial and also uh, the incentives and, and the manipulation from central banks and what it means for complacency and volatility and risk. And so it, this is a world that, uh, in my opinion, is, it's, it's highly distorted and a lot more fragile than a lot of people would think and where the only realistic way out is going to be some serious inflation. And, and despite what central banks are telling us, I would say be careful what you wish for because it's not really a very desirable outcome whatsoever. And our parents or grandparents uh, would be you know, uh, telling us, but somehow we've forgotten the lessons from history and, and here we are again uh, making the same mistakes yet in a way bigger fashion. Do you mind walking through a little bit of not necessarily proving or arguing, however you want to think about it, but walking through a little bit of what's that process you see how all roads lead to inflation? What are kind of the, some of the mechanics behind that? Well, it's um, a situation where every crisis, like, for example, um, you have a situation where back in 2001, interest rates were around 6.5%. Okay, you have a big crisis uh, in response, uh, Greenspan and the team came, put the rates down to a bottom of 1%. Um, mm -hmm. So far, so good. The world recovered with emerging markets and interest rates went up to about 5.5%. They didn't reach the previous level and the world imploded again. <clears throat> and in 2008, 
we have to bring interest rates all the way to zero and stay there for almost 10 years um, to, to try to heal uh, the system. Throughout that process, we introduced uh, also fiscal expansions, you know, things like, uh, or QE, where the central bank is printing money, increasing their balance sheet, and literally lending money to, to the governments, right? So what's happened throughout this process is the, at 0% interest rates, you and I can afford a $1 trillion mortgage, okay? No matter, I mean, at 0%, you can pay, you, you don't have to pay anything. The problem is, what happens, what happens if interest rates go to 0.1%? Then you're bankrupt, okay? So the bigger the debt, the, 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 the less room you have to hike interest rates. And what we've seen over the last, you know, 20 years is how every time we try to normalize things, things blow up earlier. So six and a half, five and a half, two and a half. And guess what? This, in 2018, on the fourth quarter, we had a big shock. The market thought we're normalizing things. We'll send uh, Goldman Sachs and others were calling for interest rates to go up, whatever, to 4% by the end of the year. And boom, uh, you have this big shock that basically, you know, you remember October, December, we had uh, the Fed and the government having to intervene. That was the moment when Powell, which was in autopilot, theoretically just saying, guys, we're normalizing things. That was the sudden realization of, oh, crap. Guys, we really have a problem. We can't really increase interest rates because uh, GE is going to blow up, Ambev is going to blow up, all these guys are going to blow up. And what happens if they blow up is they're going to fire people. We're going to have a weaker economic growth. So faced with that reality, we might as well just print the hell out of this, try to keep things stable because, you know, we cannot normalize. And what we saw mm-hmm. is interest rates had already come down to one and a half percent when COVID hit. So the problem was already there before COVID. The thing with COVID is it really exacerbated. We had a shock without precedence. Obviously, short-term rates go to zero, balance sheet size goes up exponential, and we go into something we've never seen before. And so we have more of the same problem in bigger and bigger size. Given the ginormous increase in debt, the ginormous amount of money printed, the checks given to people, this is not uh, uh, a free uh, lunch, right? You can't just decide, oh, let's just print money, give it to people, bring taxes down, let's keep everything, you know, something's going to give. And so in this process where you're printing and printing and printing, the natural thing to happen is inflation. Why? You know, some people argue that uh, they say, Diego, how can we have inflation if we have all these deflationary forces? You know, we have unemployment, we have weak economic activity, we have technology, we have demographics, we have overcapacity, we have malinvestment. And I agree 100% that all these forces are deflationary. But think about them as almost a cushion, a, a freebie that central banks have to print even more. And so whilst you have deflationary forces in the system, you are able to print even more money without creating apparent inflation. But you're not, you are just filling the, the gap. And, and there's a point where there's no return, as I said earlier. And so we are in a situation where you can't normalize things. You have way artificial valuations which have created bubbles that are systemic. And so what will happen is something's going to give. Right now, the debate is more about, hey, guys, do we really need, if the economy is picking up, COVID is done, equities are all-time highs, do we really need to print 120 billion a month to continue to buy stuff? What are you not telling me? Why are we mm-hmm. supporting the economy? Why, why are you so worried about removing this accommodation? Why are you so worried about hiking interest rates if the world is a great place? Well, maybe it's not such a great place. Maybe these valuations would implode. And so the idea of tapering, and it, it, it's going to come with a bit of a shock to these excessive valuations. And the challenge here is how do you navigate this balance between how do we take a little bit of steam off, a bit of fluff from, from these bubbles without really creating 
a problem that kind of feeds on itself. And this is a very delicate balance. So we're now seeing uh, uh, the framework is telling you guys the damage is already done. Um, we have a situation where something's going to give. For the time, the, the one thing that is likely to happen, in my opinion, is inflation to accelerate. And we're seeing that already in real estate and commodity prices and whatever. Central banks are dismissing this by telling us that it's all temporary. It's all transient. It's like, yeah, we have some bottlenecks in the system. Don't worry. We have plenty of capacity. Prices will come back down. Well, maybe, maybe not. Okay, maybe Coca-Cola will increase prices, but will not decrease prices in six months. Maybe some of these things are, maybe people need more money to go back to work. Maybe, you know. So I think this framework, this inflation, it's going to uh, challenge the bluff from the central banks. This idea that inflation is, is good, and, and the risk here is that things accelerate. Inflation, you have two types of processes. You have inflation, two plus two equals four. So how much are you printing? How much are you devaluing things? And the second one is inflation expectations. If you start to see housing prices going up by 10% and your money in the bank earning you negative, you might just decide to say, screw it and go and buy a house and accelerate the process, right? And so we are, uh, I think in my opinion, we're, we're trying to find this balance between uh, you know, preventing the bubbles from imploding, letting inflation run hot, but not so hot that things go out of control. And in the meantime, there's massive imbalances and bubbles. I mean, look at crypto, look at uh, lots of areas of, of excess, right? And so I think this is um, uh, uh, an interesting scenario where, again, inflation Inflation is not really about uh, the price of your, the value of your house going up or the value of bread going, going up. Inflation is about the value of the money with which you buy your house or you buy bread going down. And that's what you need to understand. It's, we're not getting inflation because the world is a, is a great place or whatever. You get an inflation because you're printing a ton of money and there are things you cannot print. You cannot print commodities, you cannot print gold, you cannot print land. But you can print dollars, you can print euros, you can print shares, you can print. So I think in that sense, this is the kind of dynamic we are, in my opinion, living. And it's a process that is it's accelerating and where uh, central banks will have to uh, be, you know, uh, I think very cautious because they don't want to upset the markets. Because I think what happens here uh, is, is that, you know, the, the markets, uh, if you think about them, uh, in terms of uh, behavior, uh, I use the analogy of fluid mechanics back to engineering, right? And fluid mechanics, nature has like two main regimes, what we call laminar regime, where fluids are behaving in a sort of linear fashion. And then there's a point where, you know, the plane starts to go really fast, you reach turbulence, things get chaotic, and it's all over the place. Mm. And this happens, you know, I think in the markets, that variable is volatility, okay? So in a, in a world where volatility is low, things are somewhat predictable, the perception of risk is low, you have complacency, but in a world where volatility really uh, increases, the markets become very chaotic. I use the analogy of driving a car, right? At 200 miles an hour, when the speedometer reads 80, okay? So you're like going super fast and the speedometer says 80. What happens if you have an accident? What will you feel? Of course, you're going to feel the real speed you were running, regardless of what the speedometer said, mm -hmm. right? This is what happens with volatility. You might think, look, I'm long Apple, uh, for lack of a better uh, name, gold, Bitcoin, whatever you want. The volatility might GME. give you GME. The volatility could give you some <laughs> signals, right? And volatility tells you this is okay. And then boom, volatility goes, you have these accidents. And so the, the thing with artificially low volatility is that it can, it can effectively lead to complacency and to artificially high valuations. But when volatility goes up, there's a mechanical process that creates forced liquidation. So when, once everybody realizes, oh crap, we're going at 200 plus, you need to push the brakes, right? Your value of risk increases, your boss or your uh, risk limits force you to reduce. Everybody has the same trade. You know, liquidity dries up. 
And then as everybody's trying to reduce all the same positions at the same time, correlations polarize, and this sort of feeds into itself into a process of higher volatility, thinner liquidity, and higher correlations, <coughs> which creates exponentially higher value at risk, which means that this is why the market, is, once the snowball goes to a certain point, is really very difficult to, to contain it. And this is why the central banks are so nervous and so uh, about this thing getting out of control because it can really go a very, very long way. And so they are monitoring the market, the volatility, trying to keep things under control. But unfortunately, in this process, the market it takes this as, a, as free money. Uh, the central bank mm -hmm. put becomes a central bank call. Let's become rich in a week. And you get all sorts of excesses. So, so I think the, the dynamic and, and the regime where we are from a macro perspective is, is, is fascinating. And I think there's a lot more risk and a lot more fragility in the system that what you might infer from the price action that you see. All this buy the dip mentality, et cetera, is, is, is become the norm. But uh, you see memes of, you know, handsome guys with the girls looking saying he bought the dip. It's, it's just like a gain, uh, you know, almost uh, this idea of, of taking risk and ignore, you know, and if something happens, mommy and daddy will come and rescue us. This is not a, a, a very normal market. It's, in my opinion, there are lots of uh, red flags that uh, Steve Jobs would, would say we'll be able to connect the dots looking back. There are a lot of dots already with Archegos, with the Bitcoin, with many things that are certainly giving you signals that this thing is, uh, is, is an unstable equilibrium and something's going to give. It could be inflation, it could be risk, it could be both. But I think the next few months and years are, are going to be quite eventful. Well, all that you're, you're describing risk, fragility, and unstable equilibrium. And it's not that necessarily that the U.S. is the epicenter of all this because many sovereigns are printing, though it is a very important part. And, and on our show here, we spend a lot of the time discussing America as an empire and trying to figure out, is it declining? And looking through the lens of, well, what's monetary, what's fiscal policy doing, what's society doing, what's politics doing? So all these different legs. And, and right now we're talking about monetary, a little bit of fiscal. So through your framework of instability, uh, uh, equilibrium that's potentially risky to be shaken out, how do you view the U.S. as an empire? Is it, is it still got plenty of legs? Is it uh, stable? Is it risky? Is it stagnating? I know that might not be your perfect wheelhouse, is mostly financial and monetary, but how do you view the 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 political and the the national spectrum of that look i think the us is is certainly leading the way uh in many ways i think it's important to understand that monetary and fiscal policies are a relative game it's not an absolute game so let me give you an example so back in 2008 when we had the the gfc crisis the Federal Reserve in the U.S. was a first mover sending interest rates to zero and introducing QE. At the time, uh, that was considered to be, you know, crazy in, in many parts of the world. In Europe, where we have this very orthodox view of monetary policy driven by Germany and their experience with the uh, Weimar Republic, etc., we've been very focused with inflation and the idea of printing money was was crazy. As a result, you know, even when Bernstein's was going down, we were actually hiking rates in Europe. Now, what happened as a result of that is uh, the euro appreciated very significantly against the dollar. So we had the euro going mm -hmm. to like 150. And it wasn't just the euro versus the dollar. You had the Chinese yuan pegged against the dollar. So the monetary policy measures taken by the U.S. indirectly creating a competitive devaluation which of China and the U.S. versus Europe. So Europe was very focused on being the good citizen and doing the right thing. And guess what? Four years later, we blew up. So 2012, obviously, there were other drivers, you know, the energy revolution, 
and many other things that happened. But whether we liked it or not, the uh, Europe effectively took a big, big hit, uh, partially because of the lack, lack of competitiveness. So when Mario Draghi uh, was appointed at the ECB, he's, he basically said, look, I'll do whatever it takes to save the euro. That was important. But he also was very committed to defend Europe against the aggression. And so at that point, the monetary aggression. So the only reason we have negative interest rates in Europe, in my opinion, is the Federal Reserve was at zero. We needed an, an interest rate differential in favor of the euro, so the capital account versus current account would balance. You have a Europe that was an exporter of assets at 125, and we wanted to send the euro a Germany that was exported. We wanted to send Europe, the euro dollar to parity to become competitive, and that meant mm -hmm. you needed to balance things out through bond outflows or whatever. So in a way, the reason we, I, I would, to, to put things differently, we would never, ever, ever have had negative interest rates in Europe had the U.S. been at 2%. That's very clear in my mind. So the point I made is that monetary policy, it's sold as a domestic issue. Like, oh, we're doing this for our people and whatever, but there's a huge international aspect to it through the exchange rate. And that has major implications. So whether the dollar is, you know, whether we like it or not, it's not just about the US, it's also a reserve currency and there's significant amount of debt linked to dollars. Why do emerging markets blow up every so often? Well, partially is because nobody wants to lend their money in pesos, okay, or bolivars. It's like, okay, you are Venezuela, um, if I lend you money in, in pesos or bolivars in Argentina or Venezuela, then you're going to give me back my money, but those pesos are worthless. So I don't want a local currency debt. I will buy dollar bonds. Now, what people don't realize, they think they don't have a currency risk, but the reality is they still have it. Because if the peso devalues massively, they can't pay the debt in dollars either. So mm -hmm. effectively, they default, right? And in fact, it's that debt that creates this problem. So that's part of the reason why in, in every crisis, uh, we tend to see the dollar you know, actually appreciating. There's, there's um, a huge amount of connections around the world. So what's happened more recently, and I've been very vocal about this as well, is I think the U.S. is abusing its position of power. Okay, why? What? The U.S. is abusing its power? <laughs> why? why? <laughs> Let me explain. Let me explain. So there are trillions and trillions of money that are... People are saving in dollars in China, in Japan, in many parts of the world because they rely on the U.S. They believe that the dollar will preserve its value. It will not be abused. But when you are a government that walks in and says, okay, we're going to print $7 trillion out of nowhere, you're diluting the value of the dollar. But what are you doing with those dollars? Well, you know what? I'm going to bail out my, my airlines. I'm going to bail out my energy companies. I'm going to give checks to the American people. Who is financing that? Obviously, the guys that are long dollars, part of which are China and Japan or whatever. So people at some point say, come on, guys, you are pulling my leg. Okay? You are, I'm, I'm putting my savings into dollars, and you are diluting the value and using it in domestic fashion. And this is the reason why the Fed, in a way, has nothing to lose. Because they say, come on, guys, I want a cheaper, I want a weaker dollar anyway, because I want to export my way out of this. And by the way, in the process, I'm going to print a heck of a lot of money. I'm going to give it to my people and screw the guys that are holding the dollars. And so you may end up, that's why I mean by abusing their position of power, that people have mm -hmm. uh, looked at them as you're not Venezuela, you're not Argentina, you will respect uh, and, and will have some rules around the debt and the money that you print. And this is now being grossly uh, abused. It's not just the U.S., by the way. If you look at it in absolute and relative terms, Europe is doing something similar or greater. You think about Japan, everybody's doing the same. It's a relative gain. And this is why, if you look at the exchange rate, euro-dollar, right? You print a trillion dollars, and I print a trillion dollars. Exchange rate doesn't move. 
But of course, the value of both currencies goes down. And this is the reason why things like gold or real assets should go, go up uh, in, in, a, in a meaningful manner. It's, it's about the loss of purchase power of those currencies. And this is interesting because when you think about it from an investor perspective, um, and I, I have uh, teenager kids, so I, I look at the markets and I explain using uh, uh, kind of video games. And I'll say, look, guys, this video, game, this video game has three levels, okay, three levels. When you invest your money, level one is you need to make money in nominal terms. So you need to turn your $100 into 101 or 110, okay? That's level one. I would argue that it's relatively easy. You just need to park your money in treasuries and you, know, you will earn in 10 years you know, your 1.6 or whatever. So fine, you, you got your 16% return over, over 10 years. Uh, in Europe, it's way more challenging because you're already at negative nominal yields. The second level is, okay, can you make money in real terms? Meaning, if you take into consideration inflation, yes, you made 1.5, 1.6, whatever percent, but inflation is at you know, 2, 3, 4, 5%. The reality is the dollars that you're going to get back in 10 years are going to buy you much less. Making money in real terms is way, way more difficult because there's nowhere to hide, this money printing, etc. And the third level is, can you make money in real terms after taxes? And this is certainly on the rise, mm. on a global basis. And this is kind of the dynamic that we're facing. It's, it's a way for the governments to square the circle. They have a crisis, they print money, they create asset bubble inflation, they create inequality, they tax the hell out of it, and so you're going to get taxed either through inflation, which is a tax, and it's there and it's diluting you, or real taxes. But ultimately, they're going to try to, to square the circle. And in the process, all these things are just being, uh, you know, have been distorting and creating this problem. So I, I think the U.S. Is, is, is and will continue to lead the way. There's no clear challenger um, except that uh, they are really... Uh, you know, shooting themselves in the foot in some way or, or creating some um, uh, interesting dynamics with respect to how far can you go in that process. And, uh, and they're doing that because there's no obvious uh, challenger for, for reserve currency. The Bitcoiners will, will, will very happily raise their hand, the, the, the gold bugs. Uh, and, and I think this is something that, again, touches on not only monetary and fiscal, which go hand in hand, it touches on currency wars and it touches on trade wars. So trade wars mm. is, is the mirror image of currency wars, in my opinion, because, you know, currency wars, you could look at China or another country and say, hey, guys, I know what you're trying to do. <laughs> you're trying to devalue your currency. You're trying to make it look cheaper. You're trying to attract my, uh, my factories, my labor, my technology. And you're doing all this by simply becoming cheaper? Is, that, is it as simple as that? You just devalue your currency and everybody sends you the money and the labor and the investments and the technology? Uh, well, I need to defend myself against this, right? I mean, they, it's not a free lunch because by devaluing the currency, they're creating inflation and bubbles. But the numbers add up and they work. Except that when you do trade wars, what you're saying is, look, uh, Bradford, don't devalue by 20%. Don't devalue by 20%, and you're like, eh. so the, the way for me to defend myself is to say, well, if you devalue by 20%, I'll tariff you by 20%. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of checkmate on currency wars because you get stuck with the inflation and the bubbles, but you lose your competitive edge. And this is why, you know, I think as much as you might hate or love Trump, you know, I think that the, the trade war is something that it's, in my opinion, going to continue, and it's a check and balance to potential uh, currency manipulation. The ironic thing is that the U.S. goes around labeling people as currency manipulators when they're the number one currency manipulator themselves, and that's mm -hmm. the irony and the abuse of power. But generally, this dynamic of currency wars and trade wars goes, it's, a, it's part of a complex dynamic that it, it has global implications, and there's a lot of weak links in the process 
which effectively explode during the uh, the crisis. Well, you know, I love your video game analogy, and you should just keep talking to me like a teenager because it makes <laughs> sense. It, but you know, you're you're not selling. You're not selling going past level one. Level one sounds fun. Why would I want? <laughs> sounds easy. It, it sounds but, easy, and I think I think this is. If I were to elaborate on on inflation, and I'll use another analogy, so everybody listening can make it, it, it it's very clear i use the analogy of a frog in boiling water okay mm-hmm. inflation inflation at two percent it's not a random number it's a scientifically calculated number that basically uh, you um the way to think about it uh, like this. the way to think about the uh, the inflation is uh, the you know, if you have a, uh, they say, I haven't done it personally, but if you have a, a frog and you put it in, in, uh, in boiling water, it will jump. But if you put it in, in, in mild water and you just boil it slowly, it, it, will, it will boil to death. Okay, it, won't, it will never jump out. The thing with inflation is a little bit similar. Okay, if you jump into Venezuela when inflation is boiling, you will take your money out. But if you are in a, in a, a monetary froth, or broth that is uh, basically uh, diluting you by 2% per annum, it's high enough that within 10 years, you will have lost 20% compounded of your purchase power. Over 20, 25 years, you may have lost 50% of your purchase power. Okay? I'm 47. As I always say, 20 years is not what it used to be. Okay? (laughs) When you're 20 years a whole lifetime, for me, it feels like yesterday. <laughs> and, and, and within, this is with inflation at 2%. It's extraordinarily sensitive to inflation. If inflation was 3%, this dilution would happen way faster. And these are the official numbers. Real inflation has nothing to do with this, the real numbers. That basket, there's a lot of hidden inflation, things that are not in the index. So to your, to your point, I think this, this dynamic is, is, is critical, and, and I think people need to understand that when you're playing in level one of the video game, you are subject to the uh, uh, boiling frog situation. Mm-hmm. You, think you're, you think you're winning, but after 10 years or 20 years, you realize, oh my God, where did this, my purchase power go? And this is why the new paradigm is really bringing everybody to level two. Okay, level two is the name of the game, and people will have to look at real returns instead of nominal returns. And it's less obvious because inflation is just one number, but people better wake up and, and realize what's happening. And this is, uh, I think, a key dynamic that I want to pass across to, to yeah. your listeners and viewers. Well, listening to your inflationary framework, and especially when you're talking about <clears throat> excuse me, global monetary policy and how the U.S. went there first. Well, others have gone there historically, but the U.S. being such a massive, ma- I mean, it, it is the producer and the holder of the global reserve currency. So it went there. Europe was forced to go there. Now others are forced to go there. And so it sounds an awful lot to me like a game theory almost, where yeah. if we all do potentially not is what in our self-interest, then it's more stable in the long term. But for the U.S., it was in their self-interest in the moment to go to negative or drop low. And so therefore, others have to. And that sounds like a dangerous cocktail when to act in your self-interest is bad for the global outcome eventually. And and that leads to your inflationary framework of of almost the end game is these sovereigns are going to have to inflate their debt away. And we're getting a little close to the end here, but one thing I want to end on is I'll, there's a lot of folks that disagree and are like, no, it's deflationary. But there's other folks like yourself that are that are say, you know what, this this is where we're heading. We are heading towards an inflation and it's going to be disastrous. But a part I don't hear discussed a lot about is the societal aspect of that, of if governments are going to inflate their debt away over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and perhaps they get back into a, a better position. On paper, that all might work out, but what does that do to society when everyone's living on level one or they're trying to get to level two so they are forced into crazy 
crazy risky things that don't seem that risky and then blowing up. It sounds like creating a ton of pain. And it, it sounds like a, a monetary force that creates civil unrest. Do you, do you think about that? And, and, and if so, yeah, how, how might we survive this next 10, 20 years if this is the, the path we're going to be forced to walk down? Well, two things. The, the first one is uh, the side effects of inflation is inequality, mm -hmm. clearly. And this is what Ray Dalio would call the haves and the have-nots. Okay? And this is what happens because you know, you're creating an artificial world with a lot of liquidity and stuff. And what you see is asset price inflation. House prices going up, equities going up. And, and what you see is those who have money, that top 1% is now way richer and the bottom is, is not. And the sad thing and what really upsets me about this is that people can't quite pinpoint and all they know is they're screwed. They go to the supermarket and every month, every month they can afford less, okay? Your salary is not really going up that much. Your uh, shopping is, is each time uh, buying you less. You are not happy. You can see it, you can feel it. Can you, can any of these people who are generally on the less financially savvy side, go back and say, Mr. Powell, you 100% favored the top 1% by making these millionaires billionaires and you screw me up. They don't know. In fact, the uh, things will be reversed. There's always uh, someone that will be found as, as, as you know, scapegoat. And, but what you see mm -hmm. is in, in defense to this, you're gonna have very populist movements. And those populist movements are 100% going to tax the hell out of the, the, the rich in a way that they're trying to undo what they did in the first place. But throughout the process, you have created a lot of inflation. So I might, you bought a house from 100K, that house is now worth 500K, or your shares were 100K, another 500K or a million or whatever. I might tax that and take some money and give it to, to, to poorer people through certain programs that might create some dependency, et cetera. But the reality is you, you've inflated the stuff and then shared it, but the overall level of inflation has gone up and generally you're not gonna be able to, it's not a zero sum game that everybody is better off. There's, mm -hmm. You're not. So I 100% agree with you that inequality, it's a major issue. It will 100% create a bigger unrest. And if you read through history, it brought to really, really terrible episodes for humanity, including uh, world wars. And, and this is where Ray Dalio has done a tremendous amount of work and why uh, we, people like me, are really upset that we are taking all these short-term measures that have long-term consequences. You know, our inter intergenerational uh, uh, transfers of, of, of wealth and, and debt. And, and that's really, you know, something that it's, it's very obvious what's happening. We all know who is paying for what, but ultimately I think these people will not know who to pinpoint. You know, do, do you really, oh yeah, of course, then the central bank did QE and then that's why they inflated and now I cannot afford a house. All you know is you're, yeah. so, so I think that, that dynamic is something that, uh, you know, can you blame the central bankers? Can you blame the government? Uh, I think in, in, on the one hand, if, if you, uh, Mervyn King, the former governor of the Bank of England, wrote a, a book recently, uh, uh, Radical Uncertainty, and he was incredibly honest in his assessment of, mm. of the world because he was telling you, look, we were involved in this process. The world was blowing up. And he was basically telling you they're kind of blind. They said, we didn't really know what was happening. I mean, you, you, you're in the middle of the storm. You don't really know how big it is, right? We don't really know what would happen. We don't really knew, we didn't really know what we were doing. I mean, <laughs> and we didn't really know what was going to happen. And, and so what becomes very obvious is that even these guys that have access to the analysis and stuff, they're just trying to keep their head above the water. And by doing that, you know, yeah, they're kicking the can, they're doing certain things. But if you look through it, we just go, it's, 
you do all these temporary measures. QE was meant to be temporary. Okay, look back. Of course it's not. They always sell you something as an emergency temporary measure. MMT, these checks have been sold as a one-off or, you know, temporary thing. Of course it's not. The minute you start open this, uh, opening this up, these things are really very, very difficult to unwind. Very difficult. And previous historical experiments confirm that. So, look, it's, it's a bit uh, sad, in, in all fairness, that, you know, we're making all these mistakes over again. And there's this hope, glimpse of hope that we will grow out of this and then things will be okay. But someone like me, you know, when I dedicate my, my book, uh, I, I like to use the same line. I say, look, I hope you like it and I hope I'm wrong. Because I honestly feel like a doctor that is diagnosing a really terrible disease to a friend. As a, as a doctor, I want to be correct in my assessment. And my assessment is not as constructive, okay? But as a friend, I want, I, I want to be wrong. I want to say, look, I, I, don't, I, I hope you're okay, right? And so I'm looking at the economy, I'm looking at what's happening, and part of me wants to be wrong. It's like, look, I really hope we can grow out of this and you know, the debt will be okay and inflation and inequality. But, but if, uh, as a doctor, I'm assessing the situation. I'm saying, guys, this is unfortunately not good and this is the direction in which it's going. And that direction is accelerating and, and it's not easy, but you know, that we just need to understand that we're in a paradigm shift, in my opinion, and adjust the way we're playing this game because the rules change with different levels. And, and you, you know, one of the key rules I would, I would highlight is if you open the textbook and it says, hey, we're having inflation, what does the textbook say? The textbook says if inflation comes, interest rates will go up, right? That's the general understanding of how this game works. Well, guess what? If interest rates go up, what happens to the bubbles? they implode. What happens if the bubbles implode? We're in serious trouble because it becomes systemic, companies fire people, people go bankrupt, and it, it's, it's terrible. So the new rules of the game is if inflation comes, okay, I still cannot hike interest rates because they will destroy the bubbles and I'm gonna have to cut them later anyway. So my view is that under this new paradigm, you're gonna have high inflation and low interest rates, which effectively create a world of very negative real uh, interest rates, which is potentially very supportive to things like gold or uh, real assets, uh, et cetera. You know, that's part of the reason why perhaps people are buying a lot of houses and taking debt because you, you can see that, you know, uh, that this dynamic. So it, it's, um, Fascinating time. I think people should be careful because whilst we anticipate this dynamic of rising prices and low interest rates, it doesn't mean you should just lever the hell out of uh, your position because there's going to be shocks. Yeah. And those shocks are going to take people out. Look at the recent sell-off in Bitcoin, right? People super uh, highly convicted, this thing's going to the moon, and I lever myself up. And guess what? Boom. Market sells off. You get automatically taken out. And if you're taken out through excess leverage, it doesn't matter. You're dead. You know, it doesn't matter that Bitcoin eventually recovered uh, and it did well, uh, which I don't think will be the case. But in, in any case, it's very important to control the risk. And, and investors need to understand that you need to balance what I call the, you know, the, the strikers, midfielders and defenders. You need uh, stuff that will do well when the world goes wild and volatility explodes, such as my strategy, but you also need to factor in inflation. So this is the, the two dimensions of the portfolio construction are make sure you are covered against volatility and big shocks. You need uh, strikers like equities that will make you money, but you also need defenders and goalkeepers mm -hmm. and make sure that, you know, when you build your team, you have a, an inflation a filter, which means avoid cash, avoid fixed income, especially in Europe and, and, and other parts where we're already such low rates, and uh, avoid credit, 
because uh, those assets are short inflation. The $100 or euros that you will get back in 10, 20, 30 years will not buy you much. So sometimes it's easier just to know what to avoid, and then it's harder to know what to buy. I mean, it'll be tricky. But uh, my view is, again, things like gold or real assets uh, or, or selective equities could, could create a good team that is potentially well positioned for, uh, for volatile markets, but also uh, for inflation, which is, as I said, I think on the rise. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're going to have to wrap it up. And I just want to say thank you so much for not just coming on, but your ability to explain these things in such a clear and concise way. Because as you say, I think that is a really big issue right now of just even understanding the mechanics of what's going on. And if you don't understand the mechanics, you focus on a scapegoat or you know others, foreigners, things like this, which we already see. So that's kind of the silver lining I'd like to bring to this is, you know, it, it's easy to get dark thinking about these things, as you were saying, a, a doctor assessing a, a patient. But I think the the hope at least, or part of the hope, is that even just understanding how the process works can be quite freeing, understanding how the game works, how those levels work, and and that it is rigged in some sense of the word because the rules can be changed. Um, well... Rule number one of the game is they will change the rules. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. That's, that's how I play this game. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, how, that's how I think about it. It's like, look, it, it looks like you win this way, but actually they can change the rules. So yeah. that, that's something you need to be mindful. It's, it's, you can't complain. Oh, my God. They suddenly they, uh, you know, decided to make uh, Bitcoin illegal. You know, that's not fair. It's not in the rules of the game. It's like, dude. It's 100% in the rules of the game. It can happen. It may happen. And think Just about like taxation. Think about gold. expropriation. Of course, it can happen. Yeah. It can, it, all these things are, you know, they have one objective. They have a lot of power. And, uh, and this, you just need to play the game knowing that the rules can change. And, and, and that makes this, as long as you're playing the game with that mindset, then there are certain rules like leverage or certain things that you need to to try to, 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 to avoid uh, in ways that they would take you out. You, you have to stay solvent. This is not about becoming a, the next trillionaire or you make tripling your money overnight. This is about yeah. staying solvent and hopefully protecting your purchase power and, uh, and yeah, doing the best, the best we can. But it's, uh, it, it's a challenging environment. And, and again, I expect it to be eventful for the next few years. Let's, let's see where it takes us. Yeah. And as I said, I hope I'm, I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a, that's a good point on leverage is the less leverage you have, the more adaptable you can be to when the rules do change. And, and, you know, I'd love to have you back on at some point and talk a little more about some of the um, opportunities you see of like gold. And I know you have some contrarian views on, on the contrarian play of Bitcoin um, getting quite meta there. But anyways, thank you for being on. And Diego, where can folks find more of your work and thoughts? I know you're on Twitter and you've got some books. So maybe if folks like this interview, they love what you're saying, where can they find some more of your stuff? Yeah, the the easiest way is to follow me on on Twitter. Uh, It's Parilla, double R, double L, uh, Diego. So at Parilla Diego. And uh, also, uh, you know, people are interested in our strategies from an investor perspective. They can connect with via LinkedIn. Again, uh, Diego Parrilla, and uh, we we can uh, we have a distribution list. We do regular calls, uh, so we can we can share some information. Uh, the books, uh, again, they're available anywhere. Happy, hope, hope they, you know, they, they they're. Written in 2014 and 2017, but I think the the structure that I had in mind was more of a framework, as you discussed earlier, with forces rather than uh, just a, a snapshot of of the world. Mm-hmm. It's it's more about the dynamics and and teaching how to think or teaching a complementary perspective rather than telling you giving you the the fish fished. This is more about uh, showing that. So yeah, people can reach out. I I, I hope they found it helpful, and I, I look forward to 
continuing the dialogue and, and hopefully uh, you know educating people so that they can make avoid the mistakes and, and, and make better better decisions which is which is a challenge uh, given given all things yes. we've discussed certainly awesome well thank you Diego it's been my my great pleasure I hope everybody will would stay healthy and uh, and all the best thank you again Thank you so much for enjoying our content. We really appreciate that you're here. If you want to see more, make sure to like, subscribe, tag the notification bell, rate and review if you're on podcasts, and definitely leave a comment below of who you'd like us to interview next. We read all of them. We love hearing your feedback. And so we look forward to seeing you next week.